Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Ryan Griffiths about his new book, Secession and the Sovereignty Game, Strategy and Tactics for Aspiring Nations, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2021. This book argues that secessionist movements, for all of their diverse settings and methods, are actually playing the same game to win their sovereignty. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a currently I'm an associate professor at uh, Syracuse University in political science. Uh, this book is my second book on the topic of secession. So I've been on this, uh, you know, studying this topic for quite some time. Uh, previously, I was at the University of Sydney, and um, I've been you know been a scholar for about eleven years now. Wonderful. So. You mentioned this being your second book. Uh, so do you mind telling us a little bit more about how you came to write this book, Secession on the Sovereignty Game? Sure, sure. So this book is, is in many ways a sequel to my first book. All right, The first book was called The Age of Secession, uh, The International and Domestic Determinants of State Birth. And that one was a book that uh, it really grew out of my dissertation. It's more of an IR book. And what it did was it focused on what states do in response to secessionist movements. Uh, But one of the things that my mentor and advisor, Tanisha Fazal, said when she read it, she said, this is a great book, Ryan, but there's not a lot of people in it. So this time around, I thought, well, I'll focus more on people. I'll shift the, the focus to secessionist movements and try to get in their heads and try to understand what they do strategically to win independence. That sounds really interesting. So let's kind of take a step back. Um, I think it might be useful to to just ask you to define what a secessionist movement is um, and why it's important to study these movements. Okay, so th- that's a good question. So you know, you hear this topic or this this term all the time: secession, separatism. Uh, it's used pretty pretty commonly. I define a secessionist movement as a self-identified nation that above a certain size, right? It couldn't, couldn't just be you and me, Lamise, but um, it has to be above a certain size. And uh, they do something formally to seek independence, all right? And independence in the you know, contemporary international system is usually signified by joining the United Nations as a full member, all right? So they mobilize in some way, usually by declaring a declaration of independence. And you mention uh, kind of upfront in the book that, you know, it's really important for us to sort of direct our gaze towards these secessionist movements because they're implicated in many civil wars. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's a, um, you know, so I track uh, secessionist movements over the last 200 years. Uh, there's been a substantial number of them over the last 70 years in particular, about 50 movements on average a year. Uh, it's, it's argued that they're responsible for about half of the civil wars since 1945. When I say responsible, I mean implicated in in some way, right, involved in those conflicts. Even in cases where you don't have violence as an outcome, you still have destabilization. Uh, take the case of Scotland, for instance. There's no civil war there right now, but the independence bid does have, you know, repercussions throughout British society. So these are very important events in international life. Absolutely. Um, so the book kind of argues that there is a playing field where secessionist movements try to win sovereignty. And you say that this playing field is set by what you call the international recognition regime. Um, 
What do you mean by this phrase, international recognition regime? All right. Thank you. That's a good question. So the international recognition regime, it's a term that I didn't create. It's, it was out there before I got to it, but I, but I really took it and, and ran with it. Uh, I define it as the, you know, the set of, of informal rules and laws and norms that determine uh, how a secessionist movement or a breakaway nation can become an independent state. All right. And the recognition regime is it matters for international actors, particularly sovereign states, right, who are the ones who really determine who can become a sovereign state, right? The international recognition regime provides like a set of guidelines and, and normative demands uh, for them when they, when they, you know, when they respond to these secessionist, uh, secessionist movements. That's very interesting. So one of the things that you do early on in the book is you kind of trace uh, how this international recognition regime has evolved over time. Can you tell us a little bit about this sort of evolution and change um, temporally? I can, yeah. I mean, just uh, maybe just to backtrack for one second, though. If we go back to um, the, the point you made about how I call it the sovereignty game, right? So I really do use this, uh, this metaphor of a game, and it's more than just a metaphor, because I think there really are game-like aspects, uh, to secessionism, right? You have what I call players or actors. You have sovereign states and you have secessionist movements and they do have, you know, some competing interests where secession is concerned. And then you have, you know, if you think about any game you play, right? Let's say you go and play chess after this meeting, right? There are rules to that game. Well, the international recognition regime provides rules for how secessionist movements and, and states for that matter can play that game. All right. Um, and to your question, the recognition regime has changed over time. If you think about it as the set of rules where they're constantly evolving. And prior to 1945, you really were in a very different type of international recognition regime. And I'm happy to say more about that. But if you go into the 19th century, there were different rules and practices guiding recognition. And if you go further back, there were even different rules. And at a certain point, you just get into separate international systems, right? It really wasn't a combined international system 200 years ago. But these are the rules and they're constantly evolving that sort of determine how secessionists are going to, to, to play the game. So you just mentioned the sovereignty game. Um, and, you know, you talk in the book about this strategic theory of secession, this kind of interplay between the secessionist movement, the home state, which can exercise a veto, and the international community. And you talk about how sometimes the secessionist movement can try to execute sort of an end run right around the, the home state. Can you tell us uh, more or can you, can you sort of explain this strategic theory to us? Yeah. So, so what I argue, kind of a takeaway point in the book is that, you know, despite the great diversity in secessionism in the world, right? And there is this a lot, there's a tremendous amount of diversity, right? You have Movements in Catalonia that look very different from the type of secessionist movement you see in northern Cyprus, which looks very different from the type of movement you see in West Papua or Bougainville. All right. But at the strategic level, they're all playing the same game is the, is the, is the claim I'm making. And the reason is that they're all trying to get into the same place. Right. They're all tr- there's only one international system. There's one United Nations and there's only one entrance into it. Right. Whether you're Catalonia, Scotland or the Lakota Nation, all right? And to get into that, and I can go through the, the formal rules in, in, in a second if you like, but to get into that, they have to first get their home state to try to negotiate with them because the biggest obstacle to their ambition is the home state. 
given the great weight in international law uh, placed on home states. And where home states are reticent, they try to bring in the international community. I call that the end run to get them to apply pressure on the home state and to sort of uh, push their cause through. So I'm going to take you up on your offer to kind of explain the formal, formal rules to us. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people don't know this, but, you know, if, um, let's say after this meeting today, you and I wanted to declare a certain section of Syracuse independent, all right, we could do that. And the way we would do that, and if we wanted to become a UN member, is we'd actually download a UN application. You can get that online. And you submit that application. That application goes to to the United Nations. They put together a committee from the Office of Legal Affairs and the Secretariat, and they evaluate our application, okay? And at the, the first thing they do is they have to determine if we are really a state that needs to be judged as such, all right? And if, and if the answer to that question is yes, they put us through to the Security Council, which then has a very public vote on our application. Now, what's really interesting is that there are numerous applications that are rejected at that first level and never make it to the Security Council. And there's no public record of those applications, all right? I've seen one of them, this small out-of-the-way movement in Australia called the Principality of Snake Hill, which was a family that had declared their farm independent, very serious in their cause. And they showed me all of their correspondence, one of which was a letter from the United Nations saying, you know what, we respect your right to self-determination, but you need to take this up with the Australian government. Now, if it is pushed through the Security Council, then there's a public vote, and it has to get three-fifths of the 15 members to say yes without any vetoes from the Security Council itself. Those are the very formal rules. If we change the rules tomorrow, then you'd have different, a different strategy or different types of tactics that might be put uh, to the game. That's very helpful. Um, so, you know, as you uh, as you noted, um, you argue that um, all states kind of have to go through this same, or excuse me, all secessionist movements have to go through the same process if they want to win sovereignty. Uh, and so they're all playing the same sovereignty game. But in the book, you argue that the level of tactics is where the variation is, right? Um, so I'm going to ask you in a little bit to talk to us about the different types of secessionist movements that you've identified. But first, I wanted to ask you about the two categories of tactics that you discuss in the book, compellence and normative appeal. Now, what's the difference between these two types of tactics? Okay. So I argue that, you know, strategically, everybody's kind of playing the same game, right? Uh, but where you begin to see variation in secessionist behavior is at the tactical level. And I identify, as you just said, two categories of tactics, one I call compellence, and the other category I call normative appeal, okay? Compellence is a term taken from Thomas Schelling, and it's, it's basically, it's a coercive approach to trying to get somebody, a target, to change their behavior, all right? You want to get them to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. All right. Normative appeal is different. That's where you're making some sort of uh, normative argument to your audience, which can be domestic and international, to begin to change their preferences or their ideas on your particular cause. All right. So analytically, these tactics are different because compellence is about it's a force. It's about trying to, you know, force somebody to do something, which is really what secessionists are trying to do. They're trying to force their targets to make a change. They're not in a status quo uh, game, all right? 
Whereas norm of appeal isn't so much trying to force others to do something, but to change their ideas on the subject and maybe even get them involved, whereas previously they were uh, they were um, indifferent. Right. So um, as you kind of just explained, there's, you know, the book argues, again, that um, all secessionist movements are playing the same strategic game, but tactics is where the variation is, right? Uh, and based on this tactical variation, um, you identify six types of movements. Um, so I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit or not, actually not a little bit, I hope you can be a little bit more expansive uh, here um, and discuss sort of these six different types of movements uh, that you um, sort of explain in the book. Okay. All right. So that, that could take a while. So I'll work through them. Just pause and ask questions as you go. So what I did was um, the book is, you know, the book is a mixed methods book. All right. Uh, it, you know, one of the, and it relies on a lot of data that I'd collected uh, over the last 10 years that kind of came out of my first book. And through observation, I began to type or, you know, categorize the movements I saw into what I called six different tactical, I call them tactical kinds, all right? Um, so the first one, to give you an example, is what I call a democratized movement, okay? And a democratized movement, a great example is Catalonia. And in fact, in the book, Catalonia is a case study. There are six case studies and they each line up with one of these different tactical kinds. All right. Uh, and a democratized movement is very specific uh, in the sense that we can predict, we can expect that the type of compellence tactics they use are going to be um, related to the, you know, the institutions of the state. All right. So if you're a secessionist movement and you're in a highly democratized, institutionalized society, the, the natural compellence tactic for you is going to be trying to win at elections. Uh, as the Catalans have, maybe to gain control of the Catalan uh, parliament, all right, and the Catalan presidency, and then to begin to push through policies that make secession a reality, all right? And those policies will create conflict with the state, all right? They're going to try to force the Spanish state, in this case, to negotiate, all right? The, the main normative appeal that I argue that groups in this sort of setting will make uh, comes out of political theory. It's called the it's called a primary right, the right to choose, which is that you know, look, if we take our democratic credentials seriously, then we as a as a people should have a right to choose our political fate. All right, it sounds very sensible. It's very democratic, uh, and and you do see uh, in these sorts of settings groups making exactly that type of normative argument to try to win over their audience, to win over people locally, internationally. So. A democratized movement is one of these six kinds, and the tactics they use will be about using electoral institutions and making normative appeals about primary rights and the right to choose uh, independence. Okay, and the so that's the democratized uh, type, right? Um, you identify five other types of secessionist sure. movements, right? So, do you mind telling us about? Uh, sure. Maybe let's do the indigenous legal uh, type next. Sure. All right. So. The, the next type that I look at in the book is called is what I call an indigenous legal, all right? And this is similar to a democratized uh, in the sense that you, you tend to see them taking place in very democratized and institutionalized societies, but they have a slightly different uh, setting, all right? So a good example here is one from Australia called the Murawari Republic, all right. And there's a chapter in the book on the Murawari. The Murawari are an indigenous group, an aboriginal group that have, um, you know, uh, declared their traditional lands an independent state. 
and their traditional lands are a large swath of territory that are inland and kind of straddle the border between Queensland and New South Wales. It's a big area, all right? And what I argue for these groups, and maybe I'll try to differentiate them from the one I was just talking about, democratized movements, is that given their institutional setting, their compellence tactics are going to be very similar, right? But they're also going to try to use the institutional apparatus of the state to try to get elected in their particular district, to try to put forth policies that gradually create pressure on the state to get them to negotiate. So in that sense, they look very similar to democratized movements. But where normative appeal is concerned, they really have a different card to play, all right? And the argument here uh, that I talk a lot about in the book is, I call it inherent sovereignty, all right? And this is an argument that uh, you see picked up by a lot of indigenous groups really in settler colony, settler states like the United States, or Canada, Australia, making an argument about how their land was uh, occupied and taken originally in an Ill- illegal manner. All right. Usually they'll, they'll talk about how their land was declared empty, right? Terra nullius was a term that was used 200 years ago for the Murawari. Uh, The British came and said, this land is empty, therefore we can claim it. And now they're pointing out legally, look, it was never empty. So there was, you took it under false circumstances, false pretenses. So our land has always been sovereign, right? Our our sovereignty is inherent. All right, so this is a normative argument that is made. Now, let me just make a point on this. One of the things in the book is different arguments are going to be more persuasive, are going to get more traction, all right? So in a little bit, I'll talk about a different kind called the, the decolonization movement, all right? Decolonization has a lot of traction as a normative argument. Inherent sovereignty, not so much right now, in the sense that you shouldn't expect the Australian government or the American government or the Canadian government to next year get on board and say, all right, we're behind this argument. We're going to go ahead and you know recognize these as independent uh, regions. That said, you do see, particularly in Australia, these arguments starting to make ground legally, right, in terms of land rights. And so there is uh, a push in that direction. And so these arguments have some valence, all right? Uh, You know, and it's possible that with time that they could become even stronger. And that's one of the points behind the game and the international recognition regime it's a work in progress. You're seeing this game changing over time and arguments that could become stronger or perhaps could become weaker too. That's very helpful. Um, so uh, next, um, another two types that you uh, of secessionist movements that you talk about are the weak combative and the strong combative uh, yes. types. Um, so what's the, you know, what are these two types uh, of secessionist movements? How do they differ from each other? Okay, so combative movements... Uh, there's really two types, as you just said, weak and strong. And it's, it's, in many ways, this is almost a residual category. Of, of the movements I look at, uh, there's a large end section in the book, 136. Uh, more than half are combative movements. These are movements that do not exist in highly democratic states. All right. They can be sort of middle, you know, uh, you know anoc- anocracies, meaning they're not fully democratic or fully undemocratic or just authoritarian states. Um, so they don't have the same sort of institutional options. And one of the things you see with secessionist movements like this is they often become quite combative, all right? And I think that to some extent, 
that's just, uh, it's maybe a natural outcome. If Again, if we're running a secessionist movement and we do not have political voice, we do not have access to political institutions, well, then we have to kind of look at different options in terms of compellence tactics. And what I argue here is that these movements are going to choose two different types of compellence tactics. One is just violence, right? And, you know, that can be an armed insurgency, it can be terrorism, etc. Another is nonviolent civil resistance. Uh, and uh, those are the tactics that, you know, we're familiar with that, um, you know, American civil rights movements, uh, Martin Luther King, these types of tactics where you're trying to, uh, you know, kind of get in the face of the government uh, using nonviolence tactics and that, are, that bring in large groups of people uh, and are really designed to elicit sympathy from the target. All right. So with violent movements or some combative movements, I argue that they're going to either use violence or nonviolent civil resistance, depending on how strong they are relative to the state. Where the movement approaches something like parity with the state in terms of uh, military capability, I call those strong movements. They're more likely to use violence. And a good example I use in the book is Bougainville. I'm happy to say more about them later. I probably should say more about them later. Uh, they, 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 they were a strong combative movement, and they fought in you know a secessionist civil war. A good example of a of a weak combative movement is West Papua. Uh, also in the book, they have tried to use violence at different points over the last sixty years, but they're just the the. the they're just too, they're not strong enough to, to fight in the, the Indonesian government on those terms. So they've now begun to switch to tactics of nonviolent civil resistance. And you see a big movement within the secessionist party uh, to, to push for those tactics. Great. So, so far we've talked about secessionist movements who that, that are in uh, highly institutionalized environments, right? The uh, democratized and the indigenous legal types. And we've talked about two types of secessionist movements um, that are combative, right? The weak and the strong uh, secessionist movements. There are two other types of secessionist movements that you identify, the decolonial and the de facto secessionist movements. If I could just cut in the one thing, though, just to go back to the combative movements. Um, what I didn't mention is that they, um, the type of normative appeal that they make. So, you know, in terms of compellence tactics, yes, they're either going to use violence or nonviolent civil resistance. But their chief norm of appeal, I argue in the book, is going to be about human rights abuse. All right. And so there's a there's an argument in political theory called remedial rights, which is that uh, a nation has a right to independence when they've suffered abuse at the hands of the state. You know, think of it as the social contract has been violated in some sense. All right. So I argue that for groups in these in these situations, the, the, the argument you're, you're going to see most, uh, most commonly is about human rights abuse. And unfortunately, that's partly because in those settings, you're going to see conflict and human rights abuse. So it makes sense that those arguments would be made. That does make a lot of sense. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you added that. Uh, so the final two movements are the decolonial and the de facto secessionist movements. Can you tell us about these two sort of types? Sure. Okay. So the... Um, De facto movement, uh, the larger name is a de facto state movement. A good example of this is Northern Cyprus or Somaliland or Abkhazia. These are these little specific regions in the world that are breakaway states. They're largely cut off from the larger state, usually because that's what they want. 
All right. And they function, they walk and talk and look like states, but they're unrecognized as such. Okay. So Northern Cyprus, if you, you know, if you go to Cyprus today, the, there's the island of Cyprus and on the Southern two thirds of it is the Republic. And then there's a demilitarized zone that cuts across the entire island. And north of that is Northern Cyprus, also called the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And it's been like that for 60 years. This is a secessionist movement though we don't often think about it like that because, you know, they're not fighting a secessionist civil war. They're not doing marches in the streets of the capital, right? They're, you know, they're completely sundered from the, from the rest of the, of the rest of the state. And what I have argued in the book is that, um, you know, these are a specific breed and in a way they've won a lot, right? Because, you know, the, one of the reasons you have Northern Cyprus separated like this today is because, you know, in the early 60s, you had a lot of ethnic conflict, ethnic cleansing. And so for the Turks who were able, the Turkish population that was able to secure the north, that was a victory, right? Because you had a lot of people on the run. And for Greeks in the south, it was, it was probably much the same. Uh, but one of the downsides to this type of movement is that once you become separated from the larger state, you can reach this, I think of it as a, an unhappy valley, where you're, you're cut off from the state and you lose the levers of compellence, right? You cannot do nonviolent civil demonstrations in the capital because you can't get to the capital, right? You can't go for the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, right? They can't go to Baku in Azerbaijan and march in the streets. That's not going to happen. They can't uh, win over the electoral institutions because they're completely sundered from the state. Uh, the, the insurgency that you see in places like Bougainville are also unlikely to happen because the two populations are completely separated and there's a demilitarized zone with UN forces. So their ability to coerce and compel the larger state is largely removed. All right. And that puts them in this frozen, this state where it's difficult to move forward or backward. So that, that's one of the things I talk about in the book. Now, the chief normative argument that they make uh, is usually about um, what I call earned sovereignty. This is an argument that, um, and again, I'm happy to go into the background of all these normative arguments, uh, if you like. Uh, earned sovereignty is this argument that, look, you know, we're a functional state. We provide public goods. Uh, we, we have democratic standards. We should be recognized as a state. We've earned our sovereignty. And you see a lot of states and movements in these in these in that kind of context using that language, trying to appeal. Somaliland appeals to the international community to say, "Hey, look, you know, we function like a state. We should be recognized as such." That's very helpful. Again, um, so I think the decolonial type is is the only type that we've not discussed, right? Yeah. So the decolonial is the is the final type kind of a hybrid in a way. Uh, the example I give in the book is, um, is New Caledonia, all right? And in terms of compellence tactics, uh, they're really going to vary because decolonial movements exist in all different types of settings. Somaliland is also a decolonial movement. Uh, New Caledonia is in a highly institutionalized setting. So you're going to see different compellence tactics depending on their local setting, what's available to them. What sets them apart, however, is the normative appeal they can make about decolonization, okay? And this is, you know, this, as I talk about in chapter two of the book on the international recognition regime, decolonization is, is uh, you know, it's the principle, of course, that colonized peoples should be able to, um, 
you know, uh, control their political fate, become independent. And it had very specific rules about who counted for decolonization. All right. Again, I can go into those things if you like. And so what you see with contemporary secessionist movements is a handful that have been able, because of the way they were classified during the, the colonial period, have been able to make an argument for decolonization or been able to come close to making that argument. And if you can make that argument, you should, because really of the different normative arguments, it's really, I I think of it as the ace in your hand, right? For those who can make the decolonization argument, they should. And you see a lot of groups trying to make that. In the early years, Bougainville tried to make that argument in the 90s, uh, but it failed because then it realized we don't really count. And so then it switched its normative appeal. Uh, but de- so the decolonial groups, again, it's a small set. Um, they're the ones who really push on that normative argument, which can really you know, gain a lot of traction, but their compelling tactics really vary. So just to kind of sum up, right, because there, there's a lot of very rich detail uh, there. But basically, um, depending on the types of tactics uh, that these different groups are using, you've sort of sorted them into into six types right, of secessionist movements. Um, and these vary based on the uh, regime type, based on the strength of the state, uh, and based on the degree of integration, right? So we have uh, uh, secessionist movements that are in highly institutionalized settings. We have secessionist movements um, that are combative. And we have decolonial and de facto uh, secessionist movements. Now, um, as you know, you, you've mentioned sort of the various cases uh, that you discuss in the book. And in a minute, I, I want to ask you about sort of the, your findings uh, in this qualitative analysis. Um, but first, do you mind telling us a bit about the research that you did for, for these various cases? I understand that you did quite a bit of field work. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, so the book is, it's, it's really a mixed methods book, right? So there is a, uh, you know, there's a, a large end component that uses, you know, data, original data. There are these case studies that I did, uh, six of them. But I think the, the centerpiece in terms of the, you know, the research or the methodological approach uh, were interviews, all right, uh, field work, uh, meaning that I, you know, I've, I spent some time in all six of those locations, as well as another, I want to say five or six other locations that kind of, you know, with interviews that then you know, factored into the book at various points. So just to um, remind listeners, what are the six locations? Okay, so the, the six locations are first, Catalonia, uh, the Murawari Republic, which is a secessionist movement in Australia. Uh, Catalonia, by the way, is in Spain. Uh, and then West Papua. West Papua is a secessionist region in Indonesia. It's really the western half of the island of New Guinea. And then Bougainville, which is a, uh, a region, it's really an island or a couple islands in Papua New Guinea, closer to the Solomon Islands chain. And pay attention because I think Bougainville, uh, my money's on Bougainville becoming the next independent state. Um, and then the other two were Northern Cyprus, which is the northern half of the island of Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean. And then New Caledonia, which is an island. It's, it's part of the French overseas uh, territorial system, but it's, uh, it's in the west, southwest Pacific uh, in the area of Melanesia. Right. Uh, and so you were just saying that you, you interviewed people in these six locations as well as elsewhere also, that, right? That's right. That's right. And the interviews, um, these interviews stretch back at least 10 years. Some of them I started doing 
as part of other research, even when I was a doctoral student. Um, and then at a certain point, I started just trying to go to any location I could and trying to interview anybody I could. Usually, most of the interviews are with leaders, uh, you know, secessionist leaders or people that are that are um, strategizing for, for the group. Uh, sometimes they are in the locations. Uh, for those six locations, that you know, those all involved uh, visits. Uh, but in many cases, too, I might interview leaders in exile. So to give you an example, West Papua, um, I interviewed people there uh, during a, a particular uh, uh, an event, a week-long event. But I also interviewed two of their leaders that um, are kind of like diplomats at large that are no longer allowed to go back and are free to speak in a different way than you might find uh, in West Papua. Um, and then sometimes for other groups, I might even interview people on the phone. It just kind of depended. I, I think of it as a, uh, this would fit what we call a snowball approach, which is I would try to talk to anybody I could and then let those people introduce me to other people and then let it go from there. Um, in Catalonia, that's where I did the most interviews, but that benefited from a six-month sabbatical where I was able to get to know all sorts of people on both sides of the issue right up to the, to the Catalan leadership. Right. And these, um, you know, these six cases, again, each one corresponds to a different type of secessionist movements. Um, again, the, you know, these six types that we talked about earlier. Uh, so, you know, I wish we had the time to go into each one of these cases, because I think there's there's a lot of sort of rich, uh, rich information and analysis in all of them. Um, but maybe uh, I'll ask you to kind of uh, talk to us about generally what your findings are across the qualitative analysis. And then after that, I'll ask you to kind of speak, uh, you know, more specifically about Bougainville, since that, uh, you know, seems to be an especially promising case of, uh, of a, a secessionist movement gaining sovereignty. Yeah. So, the you know, the results, um, you know, I mean, the, the way these books work, uh, you know, the results uh, fit my predictions going in, right? Uh, part of the way I built up the theory was through uh, some field work in various places, observation. Then gradually, I kind of formulated a theory, you know, a strategic theory for, for how these things went, uh, and then spent some time working through these different types. Then set the the case studies, and then when visited people, uh, talked to leaders. And you know, one of the questions I'd always ask is, you know, how do you? There's various questions, but you know, what kind of strategy are you using? Uh, a common question is you know, at what point do you expect the state to respond, right? What is it going to take to get the international community to, to weigh in, right, to, to, to force the state to negotiate? So, you know, questions like that were designed to try to get a sense for what these groups were doing, how they thought about their project, and really how much they knew about it. Um, but yeah, the, the results bore out what I expected. I mean, in some cases, you, sign, you find some movements that might be not in the case studies, but in the larger N analysis, you might find some movements that are using certain types of tactics that you wouldn't expect. Maybe they're pitching a certain type of norm of appeal and you might advise them, actually, I think you should use this one. This seems to make more sense. Uh, but, but in broad strokes, uh, you know, the, the, the findings match what I expected. Um, which is very comforting to know, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit more then about the about the Bougainville uh, case? You know, um, what kinds of tactics are they using there, and and why is it that that you think they, you know, why is it that you think it's likely that they're going to be able to gain sovereignty soon? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I should say that all of these, 
you know, one of the interesting things about this topic and what makes it so difficult to study is that each of these movements is its own, its own universe, right? You can really, you could become a specialist on just that one. So it's, it, it's fascinating to, to really get into them. So Bougainville, just as a quick history, their, uh, their secessionist uh, struggle really kind of kicked off in uh, 1989, all right. And it led there'd been an earlier attempt in, in the mid 70s, right around the time Papua New Guinea became independent. But really, it was the 90s where you had this very violent or this very destructive civil war in Bougainville. Uh, and it led to about uh, about 10 percent of the population was killed, about 20,000 people. And most of the built structures on the island were destroyed. All right. And you had a 10 year you know, conflict, a civil war. And what you see is. Um, First of all, normatively, right, Bougainville was cut off uh, largely from the rest of the world. There was a blockade imposed on the island, uh, and they didn't really have a lot of friends outside. But there's a really interesting story here is that they, uh, they had a diplomat at large, a guy named Moses Havini, and uh, he had been evacuated from Bougainville at the start of the conflict because his, his wife was Australian and he was brought to Sydney. And once he was in Sydney, he was asked by people back in Bougainville, by the leaders, can you be our diplomat at large? We need a voice to the world. Okay. And he took on that challenge. And I, I interviewed him years ago. And, and he said it was, you know, it was a fascinating story he told. He said he really worked hard to try to raise attention, raise awareness of what was going on in Bougainville. He initially tried to, you know, plug this, the, the decolonization argument. And then realized, actually, this isn't working so well. He uh, you know, wasn't getting a lot of traction on it. He also networked with other groups. He became good friends with his East Timorese counterpart in the 90s, all right, who kind of, you know, told, you know, kind of taught him, you know, the, the language of international diplomacy with this, where this is concerned. They would travel to Geneva together, right, and began to network uh, with other groups, uh, and he gradually shifted his arguments to focus on human rights abuse. All right? He said he would get on the Australian media and he would say things like, this is Australia's Vietnam, right? And, and the reason Australia played an important role in this conflict, because there's, there's an old relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea. It's partly a colonial uh, uh, relationship. And Australia was supporting the PNG government during this time. He said that he, uh, he really couldn't get a lot of support, and, and, but a turning point came when he and his team, he had a small team of volunteers in, in Sydney, they, um, they smuggled bo- two boxes of uh, you know, disposable cameras uh, to Bougainville with instructions, just take photos of atrocities. And he said he only got one camera back, only one camera ever came back to him, but it had footage or it had pictures of children that had been killed when a church was shelled, all right? And he took those photos to the Australian media, and right away he noticed a, a change. Right, you started getting a lot of conversation in Australia of people saying, "What do we? You know, there's this there's this horrific conflict nearby. We're implicated in it because we're supporting the PNG government. There needs to be a policy change." All right. So he's a good, his is a good example of making an argument about human rights abuse. All right. And trying to change preferences. And what that did was it affected the, the Australian population, which put pressure on the Australian government, which then put pressure on the PNG government. Meanwhile, in Bougainville, they fought a long war to a stalemate 
a, you know, a, a sort of a guerrilla war, essentially, and were able to, you know, fight the PNG forces to what's been called a herding stalemate. And that made it painful for the PNG government. And then when you combine the, the, the pressures coming from outside, they were eventually uh, forced to, a, um, to the negotiating table and a peace agreement in 2001 which led to greater autonomy for Bougainville and a referendum on independence somewhere between 15 and 20 years out. Okay. That referendum took place uh, two years ago, and there was overwhelming support for independence that over 98% of the Bougainvillians voted for independence. It was, it was a sanctioned vote. There were international observers. All right. And so now they're negotiating independence, the separation from Papua New Guinea, uh, and, you know, which, which you can imagine, that entails a lot of things, right? How are you going to, you know, it's like two people getting divorced. How are you going to split all the, you know, the various resources? So when I say that they're likely to become the next independent state, because all of the hurdles have been cleared for the most part. It's a matter now of negotiating that separation. But, you know, most people looking at this say this is likely to come in the next few years. Fascinating. Um you know, and uh, as I said, the, the we have all these other cases or case studies in the book, um, and you know they're all really fascinating. I wish that we have the time to go uh, into them, and you know some of them are going to be more familiar to IR types than others, right? Um, so, um, as you mentioned, the book also has a statistical evidence. Uh, uh, sorry, excuse me, a section that presents uh, statistical evidence about the strategy and tactics of secessionist movements. Um, and there's also kind of an intriguing chapter on why secessionists sometimes make bad choices. Um, but, you know, given that we're uh, running out of time, uh, I was going to sort of jump forward and ask you about sort of the conclusion of the book. So towards the end of the book, you conclude by kind of considering the future of the sovereignty game and potential ways to improve it. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, share with us some of your thoughts about that. Yeah, sure. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, so in the conclusion, one of the things I do is I think about how the sovereignty game may change. And I argue that, you know, in the short run, you know, you're not going to see a change in the players. It's not like there's going to be a new type of political form uh, in the very near future. The way that you might see changes in the game are just changes in the rules. All right. The international recognition regime is constantly evolving. It will continue to do so. And that can shift the types of, uh, you know, of norms that might, um, you know, that, that groups might appeal to because it can, it can help them in their cause. So what I do is I, um, I talk about, again, I look back in history to think about how those norms have shifted over the last 200 years. And then I speculate on how it could shift uh, in the future. And I talk about three different con- normative configurations. Okay. So just briefly, uh, I, I talk about, well, what if this remedial right became more universally accepted, meaning that any group that suffers abuse at the hands of the state now is authorized to become independent. What if everything else stayed the same, but that became a more consolidated uh, international norm? I talk about that. I talk about what if everything stayed the same, but the right to choose? What if suddenly the international community started to really stress the right of self-identified nations to hold referenda on independence? All right. Talk about that. And then I talk about a much more conservative international system, which is, you know, 
kind of, I think of it as a uh, pushing back in the direction of sovereignty norms, right? And away from liberal norms like human rights or democratic right to choose, et cetera. Uh, and I talk about what if we just push back and, and, and instead there was just a, a strong emphasis on the, on the existing territorial borders. And you do have, you know, preferences among states do vary. Uh, states like China, for instance, are, are you know they're they're less keen on these liberal norms focusing on independence and more keen on sovereignty norms. So I think about these different sort of uh, configurations, and what I argue is that you know no system will be perfect, no configuration is perfect. They all have you know pros and cons, but an inculcation or a, you know a consolidation of a right to choose, meaning that any self-identified nation should have a right to choose. As long as you set the bar quite high, all right, meaning that there's high standards. For, it's not just 51% of a population is all you need in a, in a, in a defined area, but some sort of high bar. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good setup because what it does is it can discipline both sides. It can still make the issue pretty hard to get at, right? And if you, if you look at um, you know, cases like Scotland, that, that was just a simple majority. That's all they needed. But once you institutionalize it like that, um, you know, it's hard. It can be very difficult for populations to get a commanding majority and vote in the affirmative. So I argue in the book that a, a good future, uh, perhaps not the best, but maybe a pretty good one relative to the others, is a, uh, is, is a, is a deeper stress on uh, the right to choose for, for secessionist movements. Now, Ryan, obviously, we've only kind of skimmed the surface of uh, the content that's in the book. But, you know, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is really important for listeners to know before they go out and read the book themselves? Uh, you know, I, I think that um, I, I think that how secessionist movements become states is a really important thing. We, people don't think about it that much. But, you know, if you think about other areas in life, maybe you join a union you join a sorority, you join some group, right? Some club that you join, you become a professor, right? The rules for joining those things are really important if you think about it, right? And those groups take those rules very, very seriously. Well, in the international system, you've got roughly 200 states. They're a club in a way, right? And you've got these groups that want to join them, right? And that's one of the most important things that these states need to do is figure out who can be a member of their club. And that's what this book is, is really about, is thinking about those rules and how that then shapes the behavior of those groups that want to be a member of that club. It's a very important thing. I agree. Um, so, Ryan, we've taken up a lot of your time. So just one final question. Now that you know this book is done, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, that's a good question. Thank you, Lamise. Uh, you know what? I'm still writing a little bit on a few articles here and there on secession but I'm moving a little bit right now. I'm working on a different topic area. I'm just finishing a book with a colleague of mine on a very, well, not very different, but substantially different area. It's more in the history of the, of the state system. We look back at different regional systems around the world about 200 years ago before you really began to have one international system. And we begin to look at how those different systems functioned, West Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. So we can engage in what we think of as comparative international systems analysis. It's a great project and I'm really thrilled to be working on it. It really does sound like a great project. Um, well, Ryan, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me.
The book is Ryan D. Griffith's Secession and the Sovereignty Game, Strategy and Tactics for Aspiring Nations, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.